Tonight, Justin Trudeau goes to Calgary and meets 2,000 angry protesters. I've never seen anything like it. It's November 23rd and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Calgary isn't much of a protest city. Vancouver is with all those professional environmental activists. Toronto and Montreal are just because of their size and their rich labor union front groups, but not Calgary, it's too busy working to come and chant, hey, hey, ho, ho, so-and-so has got to go. But of course, these days, it's not that busy working because Justin Trudeau and Rachel Notley have been waging a three-year war against the city's chief industry, and they're winning that war, if by winning, of course, you mean keeping unemployment high and driving out investment. Uh, but these pictures, uh, show what it's like now, 2,000 protesters in Calgary. I've never seen that in Calgary before. Uh, the last time I've heard of so much anger in the city was actually when I was just a boy in the early 1980s when Doug Christie's Western Canada Concept Separatist Party filled the big Jubilee Auditorium in town. That was also in reaction to a Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, from whom Justin Trudeau learned his hatred for Alberta and for the oil patch. Back then it was the NEP, the National Energy Program, as it was called today. NEP could well stand for the National Environmental Program, using the environment as an excuse, a carbon tax, and more to the point, outright banning pipelines that are needed to export the oil sands, which is now selling for less than $20 a barrel because of the pipeline shortage, forcing a discount on what Albertans can earn. At least Pierre Trudeau's NEP allowed oil and gas production. It just taxed and taxed and taxed it, but Justin Trudeau just plain shuts it down. He canceled the Northern Gateway Pipeline project, despite it having been approved uh, with 209 safety and environmental conditions. It was approved, and he just canceled it. And then he changed the rules to force the Energy East Pipeline to be canceled. Same again with the Trans Mountain Pipeline proposal, Trudeau killed them all, and though I see some vain attempts to revive, revive some of them, Trudeau himself is ensuring that will never happen. Two of his bills in Parliament, C-69 and C-48, will ensure that. C-48 is a tanker ban off the northern coast of B.C., but only banning tankers carrying Canadian oil out. American tankers will still sail down from Valdez in Alaska, uh, along the coast, going to Seattle, going to L.A., um, they do every day. And uh, let me show you, this is the port of Kitimat from which the Northern Gateway Pipeline would have put oil on tankers to sell to the world. Um, the thing about Kitimat, as you can see, is oil and gas uh, are indeed shipped in and out already. But C-48 is specifically worded to ban Alberta oil exports. It's punitive that way. And it goes without saying, it only applies to the BC West Coast. No tanker bans on Quebec, St. Lawrence Seaway, Atlantic Canada, where Saudi and other foreign oil tankers ship oil in. Is there a reason why Alberta oil on tankers is so dangerous it has to be banned, but Saudi oil on tankers isn't? Well, it's because Justin Trudeau hates 
Alberta. Quebecers are better than the rest of Canada because, you know, we're Quebecers. <laughs> of course. Look, we know. Or take C-69. That's Catherine McKenna's insane, kooky, crazy new bill that would add another layer of regulatory burden to any proposed project like an oil pipeline. Remember that? Project's decisions will be based on science, evidence, and indigenous traditional knowledge. We're also taking a bigger picture look at the potential impacts of a proposed project. Instead of just looking at the environmental impacts, we'll look at how a project could affect our communities and health, jobs and the economy over the long term, and we'll also do a gender-based analysis. A gender-based analysis. Yet it is as insane as you think it is. Remember this? Gender impact, how does that fit into a pipeline approval process? So I'm really glad you asked that because I think people are like, well, what is this gender mm -hmm. thing? Well, imagine that you, were, uh, you have uh, a, a huge number of people going to a remote community, many men. What is the impact on the community? What is the impact on women in the community? Mm -hmm. And actually, once again, smart proponents understand this. So they're going to put measures in place. That's all it is. It's just taking a smart approach to thinking about, okay, what's going to be the impact of a major development in a particular area? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I shouldn't laugh because it's so bloody sad. I shouldn't laugh. It's so stupid I have to laugh. Yeah, smart companies know that you need a, a gender analysis on oil. Really? Yeah, is that, is that really? Do you think Saudi oil tankers do a gender analysis other than no women allowed? So yeah, uh, Trudeau and McKenna are making it worse if possible. But it's already dead, so there's not much worse it can be. Albertans aren't fools. So when Justin Trudeau showed up yesterday, he was booed. Without further ado, the Prime Minister of this great nation, the Right Honourable Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Hello everyone. Happy National Housing Day. Yeah, that clip is telling. That was the disgraced former cabinet minister, Kent Hare. He was fired from Trudeau's cabinet for sexual misconduct. Um, but I guess that's still okay because, I mean, Trudeau himself forgave himself for sexually groping Rose Knight, a reporter in Creston, B.C., and so he has forgiven Kent Hare, too. It's so gross, these liberals. But he was booed in one of the most polite cities in Canada. Of course he was. Just like when Western farmers booed his father, who gave them the finger. Uh, look, uh, the Trudeaus hate Westerners, and the feeling is mutual. Trudeau came to Calgary and agreed that the city was in a crisis, that's what he said. But that's just what he said for local consumption. See, back in Ottawa, just the day earlier, he and Bill Morneau, uh, the finance minister, said the country was booming. Um, no mention of Alberta, no mention of a crisis. It's not even on their minds, let alone a plan to fix it. In fact, Bill Morneau was a bit angry, a bit testy about even being asked about Alberta. I mean, shut up, Alberta. I mean, after all, didn't he already spend $4.5 billion on the Trans Mountain Pipeline? What more do you want, you people? Previous governments talk about the importance of getting resources to market, but we're the government that said we're actually going to buy the pipeline to make sure that we overcome the political obstacles. I don't know how we can better demonstrate support than a check for $4.5 billion. Yeah, well, that, that was just buying an existing pipeline that's been in the ground for more than half a century. 
buying it at an inflated price off the hands of its U.S. owners who were delighted to sell it to such a fool. Um, they were about to quit their expansion plans for the Trans Mountain expansion because of Trudeau. So it was basically a $4.5 billion payment to take the existing pipeline to shut them up about not being able to build the $7 billion expansion. It's the existing pipeline that Morneau bought, not the expansion. So the expansion has not happened. Uh, if it ever happens, it will cost another 7 or $8 billion, which Trudeau does not have, which no private investor will put in. And the whole thing is moot anyways, because the Federal Court of Appeal has shut the whole pipeline down, saying it needs to go through even more excruciating public hearings. Uh, those haven't even been scheduled yet. There is no timeline for it yet. Uh, and Trudeau and Morneau have not appealed that outrageous court case. That pipeline will never be built. And Trudeau and Morneau don't want it built. They value voters in Vancouver and Quebec more than in Alberta, it's obvious. Back to the rally, I've never seen such a rally before. It wasn't even a rally, I would call it a full out protest. And it was boisterous. I've seen violent rallies before in my day, always from paid professional protesters on the left, often Antifa, that black block style with masks on their faces covered. Not, not these folks, these are severely normal Albertans who are just at the end of the rope. Unemployed, betrayed, insulted, attacked. No one's looking for a handout. Bill Moore knows tone deaf wine. I give you $4.5 billion, shut up already. The Trans Mountain Pipeline did not need any money. Energy East didn't need any money. Northern Gateway didn't need any money. They all had money. What they needed was political and legal permission, which they earned from the National Energy Board, which Trudeau took away. The Northern Gateway Pipeline had its permits, but then Trudeau killed it. He vetoed it. It's not a money problem. It's a political problem, and the problem is Trudeau and Rachel Notley. What a joke that she's hiring her old socialist friend from Toronto, a union organizer named Brian Topp, to launch a fact-finding mission like Inspector Clouseau. Like, like OJ looking for the real killers. Hey, Brian Topp, why don't you go and see, see if you can find the problem out there. What's the problem with all the... Uh, you and team up with OJ, maybe you can find the real killers. Yeah, the problem is you. Rachel Notley, your taxes and regulations, but also your failure to push the pipelines or defend them against Trudeau or your fellow NDP premier in BC. The laugh that a Toronto union organizer at a thousand bucks a day or whatever he's being paid will get to the bottom. I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. You know, that might convince the left-wing media that Trudeau just bought off, but everyone real knows that Notley and Trudeau themselves are the problem and the courts, and the political embargo placed on Alberta by the NDP out of BC. Trudeau loves that. Notley herself used to work for the BC New Democrats. Do you remember that? She's not gonna lift a finger against them. You could say that, you could say that Canada isn't working. Just across the border from Saskatchewan, North Dakota racked up its largest oil and gas production in history this summer. America's producing more oil than ever before in its history, more than Saudi Arabia. Did you know that? And they're getting full world oil prices, of course. Within days of taking office, Trump pushed through the Dakota Access Pipeline. Remember that one? Obama had stalled it. There were a bunch of protesters there on Standing Rock uh, Indian Reservation. Trump just passed that. That thing was built in weeks. Texas is building pipelines 
like crazy. It takes them months, not years. They're getting rich. Alberta is poor, and it's because of politics, nothing else. Look at these pictures. Look at these protesters here. There's an anger here, and a sorrow, and exasperation, and a loss. Now look at these guys' signs. These are good ones. Um, good questions, don't you think? Why aren't Quebec companies like Bombardier subject to the same carbon emissions scams and schemes as Albertans? For that matter, and that's the, that's the sign on the left now, why are Saudi oil imports to Canada not subject to carbon emission tests? Forget gender analysis. Why are Saudi oil imports not subject to carbon emission tests? Why are Saudi oil imports not subject to a carbon tax? when it's imported, but domestic Canadian oil is. Well, because Trudeau. But Calgarians have a sense of humor too. Can I show you a couple of fun ones? Um, <laughs> sorry, these are funny. I just gotta show it to you. Trudeau says he hates Albertans. Trudeau's dad said he hates Albertans. And more to the point, they act on that hate. So Albertans say some funny, but mean, but true insults back, uh, or at least the Mick Jagger part's true. I don't know about the Castro part. I won't testify to that. It's not a bad way to blow off steam. You have a right to criticize your prime minister in this country for now. Unemployed people who have not, have no chance of working, not because of a problem with them, not because they don't have skills, not because there's no resources in the ground. It's not like the Atlantic fishery, there was no fish anymore. There's oil in the ground in Alberta, but because Trudeau and Morneau and Notley and McKenna won't let them work. They have a right to be angry, but not according to the bought and paid for Trudeau media. It was bad enough before with the CBC dominating the news, Canada's state broadcaster, but now add in $595 million with Trudeau's new media slush fund and it's just wall-to-wall -wall propaganda. I want to show you something here. Let's start with the CBC. Here's how the CBC covered Trudeau's visit. Look at that. Nenshi and Trudeau hugged it out during Calgary meeting. Hey guys, I'll tell you what the big news in Calgary is. Is, is, is that really the big news from Calgary yesterday? 2,000 angry unemployed men and women at a noisy protest. But hey, hey, our two favorite leftists, they're hugging it out, guys. Hey guys. That's their lead story because of course it is. And look at this, I showed you those funny insults about Trudeau, that Mick Jagger and Fidel Castro, you gotta laugh. Will you laugh? Well, <laughs> you know who wasn't laughing? The professionally offended, scoldy media. Uh, here's Miriam Ibrahim, a uh, former Post Media reporter. Um, we blanked out a, a swear word there. Uh, she went to, to work for an Alberta Labor Union, so she was at Post Media, and then she left to go to work for a Rachel Notley front group. Uh, because of course she did. Uh, but she's furious at those particular protesters with the Castro sign and the uh, Mick Jagger sign. So she writes, that is an effing noose hanging from a tree on that guy's sweatshirt. Now I looked really closely and you can sort of see that that's a, a, a tree that has a, a noose on it and it says, come West Trudeau. And that guy's a bit of a jokester and he's smiling. And that's a joke. It's a political joke. Um, it might not be in good taste, but it is a joke uh, because he actually does not want to hang Trudeau. It's a joke because not everyone who is unemployed can go to work for Rachel Notley's union front group to make six figures. Not everyone who's unemployed can go to the CBC to make six figures disparaging the West. Some people need a real job. 
but that jokey t-shirt is all the media party needed to discredit 2,000 unemployed men and women at a legitimate grievance. Look at the trail of replies to that Miriam Ibrahim. So first up is Tyler Dawson. He says, I, I didn't see it at first, but there's a whole array of in intense stuff from these guys' websites. Uh, like, at a bare minimum, I, I don't know what this achieves. And Miriam Ibrahim says, these people effing scare me. They scare me, man. And then here's Tim Querengesser. He's from the Global Mail. Tyler Dawson was post-media. Mary Ibrahim used to be post-media. Tim Querengesser's with the Globe and Mail. You see all these reporters? It achieves creeping me the F out. Really? <laughs> they're, they're really, really scared that maybe there will be a hanging there that's going to be an actual lynching? Don't lie. Don't lie. And then there's Danielle Parody from a bunch of left-wing uh, media sites. Oh, civility is only expected from us. That's an us the left-wing journalists, they have never had any intention to follow the rules. They insist we have to. So these, what I'm showing you here are journalists tweeting amongst themselves their derision and despise and scold and fake fear. Oh my God, they're going to hang someone. So the real news is that 2,000 Calgarians had a peaceful but noisy and sometimes boisterous and sometimes funny protest against unemployment being foisted on them. And the media reports, the fake news media reports, were that Nancy and Trudeau hugged it out, guys. That's the big story today. And someone was wearing a novelty shirt, and he wanted to kill Trudeau. And that's really, really scary. And I think the RCMP should investigate him. I'm sure they'll have the same reports when some leftist hippie wears one of those iconic Che Guevara or Mao t-shirts. Or, for example, when Rachel Notley wears her Che Guevara watch. Seriously, looking at that murderer's face every time she wants to know what time it is. This isn't going to get better. Trudeau and Morneau and McKenna are just fine with things the way they are. No pipeline is going to be built. Brian Top won't find some magic beans. Alberta will get poorer still, even when Notley loses next year because Trudeau and Horgan will still block the pipelines and the tankers. The only thing that's changed in the past week is that Canada's media is even more compromised, even more biased than ever. This is not good. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, the other day when we had our TheRebelLive.com event in Calgary, 600 of our friends from Calgary and region coming together to spend a day. It was, it was a great day. And I met one of our supporters there who was a delegate at The Rebel Live. And we started talking about residential schools. And he told me that he has a family experience with them. And he told me at great length. And I said, Gabe, You've got to come on the show and tell all our viewers. Would you do that? And he said yes. And so today I'm delighted to talk with our great rebel supporter, Gabe Desjardins, about what he told me a couple weeks ago. Gabe, nice to see you again. Thanks for taking the time and thanks for agreeing to tell your personal story, your family story. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to listen to me. Well, come on. It's a fascinating story. I, I have another friend who personally went to an Aboriginal residential school. And he told me that it really put him on the path in life 
to become a success. He's a prominent lawyer, he's a successful man by every mark. His own son has joined his, like it, it's such a success story. And that story is so contrary to the dominant media narrative. And you told me a similar story. Can you introduce yourself a little bit to our viewers and tell us what you mean? I mean, you told me, for example, you're a status Indian, which is a legal status, and that your family has a lot of experience with residential schools. Why don't you just take it away and tell me what you told me at The Rebel Live? Um, my, my mother and 12 of her siblings attended residential school, plus countless cousins that we lived close by. I know them personally, and, and, they, and they've told me many stories. My mother had, when she used to chide us, I mean, my mother would say, you don't know how easy you have it. And she started working in a kitchen half a day at six years old. But this wasn't something she said for pity. You know, uh, to give you a further background, my mother was widowed uh, with 13 children. Uh, I was four years old, I had two younger sisters, and she credits the talents that she picked up in, in, in the, in the uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the word, the skills she learned in residential school helped her keep our family together, which was a miracle. Well, let's back up a bit. Where, what community were you, were you in? You're in Calgary now, I think. Uh, where did you guys grow up? I, I, I was in a, a very small community in, in uh, north central Saskatchewan, Marsland, Saskatchewan. And uh, my mother was born on the Muskeg Lake Reserve. And she was a member there. And in fact, a lot of my brothers and sisters are members now of the Muskeg Lake Reserve. Uh, though I, I, I'm, a, I'm a status... Indian, I have never applied for membership to any band mm -hmm. because I'm uh, of the opinion you can only slice the pie so many times, mm -hmm. and I really don't want any help from the government. Well, uh, so I was taught I was taught to be very independent. I bet. Well, let's talk. I mean, and we talked a little bit, and you've been such an avid rebel supporter. Um, I want to talk more about your mom because you you, you told me at some length of how she said it put her on the path, taught her skills. You've alluded to this now. Can you tell me, I take it your mother has, has passed on, can you tell me some of the things she told you about her experience in residential school? Uh, what did she say was good about it? What did she say she learned from it? And importantly, did she condemn it or criticize it as well? I'm just curious for the whole picture of what your mom said happened to her at residential school. Yeah, uh, she never claimed it was the easiest life. Uh, like I said, it, it taught her the skills and she admitted it many times and that uh, after she was widowed, uh, uh, her sewing skills especially uh, helped her uh, uh, raise the family as a seamstress. And also like, the, you know, uh, the basic uh, running a household chores. Uh, and she was a very, very, uh, I guess, pious woman. Uh, in fact, in, in, in our house, she had a, a picture of the principal priest who ran the school hanging on, on our wall. So there was, there, was, there was never any hard feelings, but she never tried to tell us it was easy. Yes, there, were, there was uh, uh, punishments, there were rules to follow, but 
it, it didn't bother. In fact, uh, one time she told me that uh, if it, when the boy, she always said boys, when the boys ran away, after the third time they had their head shaved, but they deserved it, she said, hmm. you know. But uh, she had, you know, very fond memories. Uh, and in fact, uh, throughout the years, not only my mother, my aunts and my uncles, and especially some of my uh, cousins who after the school closed had no place to go. And oh, over the years, we had three or four of my nephew or my cousins living with us. And there was never any hint of, of, of abuse. Yes, there were rules to follow and there are consequences, but the whole idea of these schools set up to abuse the children is, is ludicrous. And one of the complaints that critics of these residential schools make is that children were removed from their mom and dad and that this was um, done uh, forcibly and that this destroyed the bonds between parents and kids. And that's a compelling argument. I mean, to take kids away from families. I mean, it's one thing to send your kids off to boarding school. It's another thing to be taken. Did your mom ever talk about that? Did that, did that happen to your mom? Was she forcibly taken? No, I, I'm quite sure my grandparents wanted it. Uh, in fact, one of my older sisters tells me about the scene when the wagons, actually horse and wagons, would come and pick up these uh, these kids, and the younger ones that couldn't go would cry because they wanted to go. Hmm. So obviously, when they spent the summer with their siblings, there was no tales of terror and abuse and, and you know malnutrition. It just it just wasn't there. Of course, having said that, Ezra, I can only speak for two schools that that my family went to. That was uh, St. Michael's in 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 Duck Lake and Labrep, just a little bit north of uh, Regina. Now, um, I, I'd like to know what the status of your grandparents was. I mean, you talked about some practical skills. You said your mom learned how to be a seamstress, and she learned, sounds like she learned some rules for life so to be a successful person. I can only imagine how tough it would be to be a single mom with so many kids. Um, the house that she came from, your grandparents, was what was that like? Do you know? Did you have any interaction with your own grandparents? I mean, I don't want to ask dumb questions, but I I think my questions are sort of dumb. Did they did they have modern work skills like being a seamstress? Did they? What was the economic or, or household economics of your grandparents' home? What kind of skills maybe were they lacking that the residential school gave your mom? I don't think my, my mother was lacking any skills from her parents. Uh, my grandfather, I would say, was a, a fairly successful rancher. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, they had, they had a, a, quite a nice two-story home right on a creek, with, uh, though it was all gone by the time I visited, because my grandparents died before I was born. But they had an orchard and everything. And it, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't really, really primitive, but they had no indoor plumbing. and as everybody uh, lived in those situations then. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned that your mom and all the siblings and cousins and nephews went. Do they, do they ever talk about, I mean, I guess this is a generation ago, but did they ever talk about the politics of it? I mean, you mentioned that 
They never mentioned abuse. They said there were some strict rules and of course some punishments for kids that break the rules. I guess all boarding schools would be like that. But was there any talk about the politics? Did, did it feel, was there a resentfulness? You mentioned your mom had a picture of the priest in her own home afterwards. So I guess there couldn't have been that much resentfulness. Um, did they ever feel like it was a cultural, to use the modern word, a cultural genocide or an attempt to deracinate, to get the Indianness out of your mom? Did you feel that way? No, not at all. And what you got to realize that English had to be spoken because there was different dialects, and you couldn't, uh, and and you you wouldn't have any teachers who could speak in our case Cree. So English was was the uh, the language spoken in school, but. Uh, like we lived right next to the reserve, and 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 I visited the reserve often. And when my mom's friends would come over for tea, which was quite often, a few times a week, they'd all speak Cree. My cousins all speak Cree. Uh, and uh, my mother often went to uh, powwows, even though she was very, very uh, uh, Catholic. But it seemed that she could meld both societies. Mm-hmm. So. Um... What, was it a government school? Was it, you mentioned the priest and the Catholic nature of the school. Um, was it the government and the Catholic school together? Like what, how did it, how did it happen? How did the school, do you know how the school was formed and how the kids were recruited to it? You mentioned your grandparents didn't object to this. Uh, was, yeah. was this, can you tell me a little bit more about it? I find it so fascinating. And the reason I'm asking all these questions, Gabe, and the reason I was so attentive when you introduced um, this subject to me a couple weeks ago is because you just don't hear this side of the story. All we hear about residential schools is how hateful and racist and bigoted and genocidal they are. And you're the second person to tell me family stories about residential schools. And you're the second person to tell me it was a great thing for the family. It, it was a great thing for a lot of families. Uh, my mother might have not been an exception, but a lot of families didn't have the family structure my mother did before she went. And and this really helped some of the more, uh, I guess, the population on reserve that were really in, in, in you know, quite dire poverty. And I, I, I think this, this helped a lot of them. But I've often wondered why nobody else has spoken out. And one of the reasons I approached you, I think I owe it to my mother, my mother's family, that this has to be said. My mother would have never have kept quiet about this. It's it, it, just the way uh, society it forgets history and rewrites it. But how it works, from what I can gather, the reserve we were on was predominantly Catholic. So when they opened a residential school, the, the Catholic Church took over, but there were other residential schools run by Lutherans, Anglicans, whatever the predominant the missionaries were. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we called the, the church on the reserve the mission. Mm. Hmm. I, I have a theory that um, this revisionist history, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that there were episodic cases of abuse as there would be in a in any boarding school, Aboriginal or not, Christian or not. I mean, human nature, uh, there are criminals and abusers uh, amongst us. um, And I don't doubt it happened uh, to some kids in some schools. 
But I think to try and rebrand all residential schools, not only as abusive, but as genocidal and racist, I think it's an attempt to create a false narrative of victimhood and victimizers to justify political programs in 2018. So yeah. I'm not saying there aren't some problems in the past that ought to be addressed or even some wrongs that need to be righted. But it seems to me, this is my theory, Gabe, is that the history of your mom and her family and those schools and those reserves and the thousands of kids who had a successful uh, career in these residential schools is being hijacked and revised by 21st century politicians for their own purposes. They're trying to build up a narrative and then they're going to pose some political solution of their own. They're trying to create a problem. That's how it feels to me. Am I wrong on that? What, what's your sense on that? There, there, there are two things here. You're right on that. One of the first things here is this current, undercurrent, whatever, of vilifying Christians overall. Mm -hmm. We're in a sorry times where Christians are being vilified. And another thing is that the residential schools didn't cause all this, these problems. So it's so easy to blame residential schools when a lot of blame should be taken up upon ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We, we have to be responsible. This whole idea, Ezra, that I, I just read in the paper the other day, I could stab my wife and get off at half the time because my mother went to residential school. Like, isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, you know? that's a good point. And, and I'm sure, I'm positive, there were a lot of bad things. And as I said, I'm only speaking for two schools. But having lived with a lot of my cousins and that, and and one of uh, another, uh, you know, I keep stumbling on native because we used to call ourselves Indians. Mm -hmm. Another native boy lived with us for years, and we're still really good friends. And and with my cousins, that like I can remember countless times, you know, as young boys sitting around a campfire or just talking and everything. I never heard of any abuse. There, there wasn't even a whisper, it, mm -hmm. a whisper of it. But yes, you know, there were consequences they had to pay when they, they didn't obey. And there was punishment. But no more than the school I went to. Mm -hmm. We had corporal punishment in our school. Yeah. Well, even when I went to school, um, probably even more recently, we had, you know, you get the strap or get your hand hit with a ruler. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it was great, but that's how it was even at the, at the public school uh, that that's I went right. to. Um, well, listen, I, um, I think it's very interesting the story you tell, and I, I wish that there were uh, more of these stories that were memorialized, because I sense that with that generation passing away, these other contrary narratives to the dominant left-wing political narrative are going to be lost. And I'm worried that we won't know the truth anymore because as your mom's passed away and that generation fades into time, I'm worried that the history will be a false one. Do you have any closing thoughts on, on that, Gabe? Uh, my mother never blamed the residential school for any problems. She blamed the reserve system and, and the government. The, the way they handle it, but those were different times. You, you can't judge people today 
to what happened 100 years ago. I think that's a wise point, and I'm, I think it's a very thoughtful observation that the, the schools, especially those with a Christian character, are being made the scapegoat for all manner of problems. I agree. I think that the reserve system, the Indian Act, and the government to this day are problems, and I think that's an inherently racist system. I think you're right. I think this is an attempt to put the blame for all the ills on the easiest victim, the Christian schools, and as you say, there's a lot of good that they did. Well, Gabe, I have to tell you, I thank you for when you offered to come on the show and tell me what you told me privately at the Rebel Live. I was thrilled. And thanks for making the time to tell us today. I want to leave you with one last thought. Okay. You know, the conquerors who conquered, I want to say Indians in Canada, you know, they couldn't defeat us with starvation and bullets and other forms of abuse. But you know, they're gonna destroy us with pity. Mm. Isn't that very interesting? That I think the, the narrative of victimology, uh, you know, when we, I sometimes talk about Aboriginal issues on the show, Gabe, and I like to focus on the job creators, uh, the entrepreneurial chiefs, I love that, Chief Louie in, in BC, for example. And it frustrates me that so much of official Indian narratives from the government, from the CBC, is like you say, pity and victims. I, I hope what you just said does not come to pass. So do I. All right. Well, Gabe, thanks for your time and thanks for telling your personal stories. Tell us your mom's full name. I don't think we ever got that. My last name? Your mom's name. My mom's name was Therese Gray Eyes. Therese Gray Eyes. Well, it's a pleasure to hear her story through you, Gabe, and thanks again for your time. Thank you. All right, there you have it, Gabe Desjardins and his mom, Therese Gray Eyes, who attended a residential school, and now you've heard her story. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about Trudeau's 595 million slush fund for trusted journalists. Peter writes, with Trudeau doling out this taxpayer money to trusted media that toe the line, independent media becomes all the more important. Thank God for the rebel and Blacklock's reporter. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, they, they're called trusted media and of course Trudeau means that he can trust them. But of course this will discredit them even more. I mean, why would you read a newspaper that you know is essentially vetted by the Prime Minister's office. If you wanted that propaganda, you would just go to the Liberal Party website. Why would you actually pay for a newspaper that's really the Liberal Times? In a way, it'll hasten their own demise because it'll lower already low respect for the media. Someone with a nickname Money for Nothing writes, buying media is consistent with Trudeau's past actions of buying and then controlling distressed assets. Newfoundland comes to mind, Alberta's energy regulator, Trans Mountain. On the bright side, this investment will hasten the demise of print media. Canadian journalists will, like a CBC comedian, soon be playing to an empty house. I think so, uh, but I'm not sure. But a lot of people are not as politically wired as you and me. I mean, look, I soak in politics all day long, and frankly, if you're watching this show, you probably do too. I mean, what percentage of Canadians follow the news as closely as you or I? 
most people are normal. They live a normal life. They hear politics, just overhear it here or there. They catch a headline. They, they see what someone said on TV and that's, they repeat it. So I think most Canadians, not because they're dumb and not because they're naive, but because they don't care about politics, they don't follow it closely, they'll say, oh, the Globe and Mail said this, CTV said that, the Toronto Star said this, uh, and those are newspapers for my whole, my, I don't read it, but my parents did. So, I mean, my point is, what Trudeau's really doing, and, and it's a good point about buying distressed assets, he's buying the brand value of the Globe, the Star, the Sun, the Post, and jamming his own liberal content in there. So the only thing these newspapers have left is their name. And that's what he's buying, and he's slapping their name on his content. It's diabolical, but it's brilliant. Bruce writes, Trudeau is ensuring that normal folk who aren't woke will hear only what he wants them to hear. Yeah, that's, a, that's, exactly, that's exactly my point, is that um, when people see a Liberal Party ad come on TV, at least they know, okay, I'm, be, I'm being told some BS now. I put my guard up. But if some reporter from the... And you saw those reporters. I showed them earlier today uh, how they were sort of synchronizing like birds lining up in a flock. They were synchronizing on Twitter. Oh, I'm outraged. I'm effing scared. Someone had a mean shirt on. I'm effing scared. Call the RCMP. You saw them. You saw them. Don writes... I hope that journalists like Lauren Gunter, Barbara Kay, and Anthony Fury have the courage to keep telling it like it is, even though they're going to be at great risk of being fired when their employers accept the subsidy. You are exactly right. You're exactly right. And the phone call will not be put to a Laurie Goldstein, Anthony Fury, Candace Malcolm, Tarek Fada, Joe Warmington, I'm naming the good guys here, Terrence Corcoran at the Finance Post. Phone call won't go to them. Phone call won't go to their editor, because their editors probably have at least a drop of editorial independence and idealism in their blood. Phone call will go to the publisher, the CEO, the bean counter, the person who's filling out the grant application form. It'll be a phone call, it won't be a written letter. It'll be informal, you know what? It might even be over coffee, so, hey, can I stop by for coffee? Um, yeah, it's Gerald Butts here. Can I stop by for coffee? Uh, I just have a few things I wanna run by you, yeah. Be noticing the uh, Toronto Sun's been going a little heavy on a few stories, and hey, you know, the Financial Post is still bashing the carbon tax. Hey, Paul Godfrey, do you mind if I come by for a coffee? We, we gotta talk about that. That's how it's gonna be. That's how it's gonna be. And if you had $50 million in the pile here, that's probably what Post Media will get, at least. I mean, they're more than 10% of the median can in terms of number of outlets. So 50 million, a pile of $50 million over here, or some mouthy conservatives like uh, the ones I've named over here, and your job is to uh, live up to your fiduciary duty to your owners, you're going to go to $50 million. That's what's going to happen. I, and, you know, they'll, be, they'll, they'll offer Joe Warmington, Candace Malcolm, Anthony Fury, Lord Goldstein. They'll offer these guys a buyout package. Sure. Hey, here's, here's uh, 75 grand. Go away. Here's 100 grand. Go away. It's the bargain for post media. Yeah, now, there are no conservatives at the Star. There's, I can't name any at the Globe. Um, I can't name you any at CTV for that matter. So, so really, you're the proprietor of these newspapers. You say, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go up to uh, Sue Ann Levy and say, Sue Ann, you, you had a great run here. Um, here's a hundred thousand um, dollars. Time to retire. 
that's a bargain for the son to do that if there's $50 million hanging in the balance, isn't it? Yeah, let's say altogether they pay a million bucks in severance. It wouldn't be that high there. It would be a trifle of that. But let's say they spend a million bucks paying out severance to terminate their conservative voices. They wouldn't even have to. I mean, Tarek Fatah, another great voice in the sun, I'm sure he's not even on payroll. I'm sure he's just a contractor. I don't think Candace Malcolm's on. So you, would, you really have like five conservatives who are actually on payroll that would need to take a buyout. Yeah, it would, the whole thing would probably cost post-media like maybe 300 grand. And in return, they would get 50 million. I think they'd get 50 million, at least, because if there's 595 million, there's so many papers and post-media heads, they'll get 50 million. No wonder Paul Godfrey said, all my employees should do a victory lap around the building. He meant it. But not us. I mentioned our website yesterday, youcantbuyus.com. Youcantbuyus.com. That's our way of saying we're not for sale. We rely on our viewers instead. Like you. Thank you for giving us eight bucks a month for this premium show. If you want to go to youcantbuyus.com, that's great also. That's it for today. Enjoy the weekend. We'll put things up on YouTube, and I'll be back with my shows on Monday. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.